Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It's me, Steve Hall, your host as always. And today I'm very excited to have Valentin Tambosi on the podcast. I think a lot of our audience will be aware of Valentin. Um, he's kind of a, quite notorious within kind of the natural bodybuilding scene, even unnatural, uh, just bodybuilding in general. Uh, but if you aren't aware who Valentin is, I think I probably first came across Val from Cliff um, as one of Cliff's clients. And uh, Val has then kind of broadened uh, horizons and kind of made me see even more from his own coaching perspective and what he does. And he is a pro natural bodybuilder and a coach. Uh, he is a speaker at Intelligent Strength and trains out of Das Gym in Vienna, which is uh, one of kind of all one of the top gyms in the world. And it's certainly a gym I have on my kind of to-do list uh, to get there at some point. And uh, is there anything else you want to let the listeners know about you, Val? No, I think that was a very good intro, man. Thank you so much. I hope I can deliver some good information today. Awesome. So I think we were just talking off air and unfortunately we're a little bit delayed recording this because Val actually ended up dropping uh, a really heavy dumbbell on his toe and was having to ice it and it was in quite a lot of pain. But we were talking about how bodybuilding is great because despite being injured or having something not quite there, you can still make progress. And I think some people let these things set them back too far. And I, I think it would just be nice for a lot of the listeners to hear about kind of how did you handle the big toe and what was your perspective on it? Because I think a lot of time people get injured and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to throw in the towel. My season's over if they're like competing or whatever it might be. Uh, so yeah, take the floor, about. Yeah. All right. So I think a lot of things, especially with bodybuilding is just mindset and the way we think about things and the way we approach things can turn things around very quickly. So around two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, I dropped the 30 kg dumbbell on my big toe. And while that was very unfortunate and the bro is token, uh, broken, I um, went back to the gym like 72 hours later and did a pool session. And then two days later, I did a squatting session. So that worked fine because not because of my magical healing powers or because I did anything special with supplementation or anything. Um, I just iced the toe like you just mentioned. But it was simply me approaching the whole thing. Well, I cannot... I can barely walk, but I can still squat and I can see and try if I can squat with this toe. And at the same time, I was getting a new perspective, what my squatting technique is like. And it was like a blessing in disguise because in the past, I used to put too much pressure through my big toe into the ground when I was squatting, especially with my left leg. So that was the perfect opportunity to, to actually distribute more force through my heel when I was squatting. So. It basically took the toe, not as a crutch or anything, but basically as an, as a starting point for like approaching it with a new mindset and turning a negative into a positive. So I think with every injury and that smaller nagging injuries before like elbow or shoulder, like stuff everybody I think has at a certain time in the lifting career. Um, I always looked at these things to learn more about the cause, to learn more about the problem and solve that problem through basically knowledge and learning more about it. I think that is a fantastic, fantastic way to approach things because every time you feel like sorry for yourself, you just answer it with, okay, I got to learn more about this. I got to, I got to find out why this is happening. Why are people constantly having this issue or that issue? Well, figure it out and probably the issue won't come as frequently as it's currently occurring. So this is just the mindset. I think you can adapt with so many different things, whether you are doing a cut, whether doing a prep like you, Steve, or if it's like a stalling lift or whatever is not going your way, if you just adjust your mindset and look at it, okay, I have a problem here and I have to solve that problem. 
that is something very enriching and that can be a lot of fun. And that was the case with the toe, actually. I'm not too worried about the toe anymore. I can, I can squat, I can pull, I can do all these things. So now I just have to be patient and make sure it's 100% so I can basically walk again. That's the only thing I cannot do currently. Yeah, bodybuilders, we don't need to walk or run. We just need to get ourselves into lifting positions and we're all good. So absolutely, I, absolutely. I love that perspective because it's it's like finding the silver lining and it's also what makes a lot of the coaches the best coaches are often the ones who have gone through the most hardships. They've had to troubleshoot for themselves. And then, I mean, the best coaches are the ones who can troubleshoot scenarios the best. So whilst a broken toe might not happen that frequently to a client, like an injury to the foot, that's something that is probably going to happen to a lot of people during their training career. Uh, so how, how did the the drop on the toe come about, by the way? I'm guessing that's not something you could have prevented. I could have actually. Um, so I did a push session and I just placed the dumbbells on a decline bench and I made sure they don't roll off. I always place them there. Um, but what I didn't account for is that the lower dumbbell that I placed lower on the bench started to slide very slowly. Um, and I was standing at the end of the bench talking to somebody and all of a sudden I heard like the dumbbell drop and unfortunately it dropped exactly with the edge of the dumbbell on my big toe. Um, so it was not rolling off to the side, it was slowly sliding and that was the problem. So yeah, it was 100% my own fault. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I think these lapses, ha they're so easy to happen. So I guess it's just, that's, it's always a constant reminder of, okay, just take extra care and uh, yeah, moving through the gym. So to actually talk about our first topic, because like I said, Valentin is a natural pro bodybuilder. He has a really cool competitive history and uh, his competition prep with Cliff was something that I really enjoyed watching and viewing. And I don't think you've talked about it in huge amounts of depth, at least for quite a while. Um, so I think it'd be really cool to hear you looking back at it now uh, and talking about, first of all, let people know how you did. Um, and then maybe talking through some of the biggest lessons and challenges that you're going to take away. And again, like being a bodybuilder, you're not letting those kind of mistakes or if there were mistakes, hold you back. You're learning to become better in future from them. For sure, man. So I want to start right at the beginning. So just a brief intro to my 2017 season would be my 2014 season, which was just a one show season because back then I didn't know it's usual or common for natural bodybuilders to do numerous shows. Back then, I, in fact, I didn't know a natural bodybuilding existed, to be honest. So back then I did an untested show in the Nava, Austria. It was the Nava Austrian Open right here in Vienna. And I prepped 20 weeks for that show. I went from 90 kg to 77 kg and I was not at a great starting point. And at the end, I wasn't in great condition on stage. So um, lesson number one, give yourself enough time. Um, and leading up to the 2017 season, I obviously educated myself regarding natural bodybuilding. I learned, wow, this entire, this entire industry, there's different federations, there's different people being active in these tested competitions. And I just wanted to join that, obviously, because I wanted to see how I stack up against other natural athletes. So I started, well, compared to th 2014, I made my second mistake or lesson number two, I started the prep too lean. Yes, that's also possible. Um, because back then I just wanted to make sure Cliff has a fantastic starting point to work off with. And I just wanted to impress him with the condition that come to him when we started our collaboration. So that was November, 2016. And the first show was at the end of April. And I was 83 kg at the beginning of prep compared to the 90 kg back in 
2014, which should give people like, um, it should be serve as a small reminder how much progress you're going to make as a natural athlete in between years. Um, so I got lighter and lighter, but I actually got more muscular. And from there, I, will, I, I quickly realized at the midpoint around February, beginning of March, there was probably too lean at the beginning of prep because like certain things just occurred, like my sleep was going downhill very, very quickly. Like I already had slight sleep issues before I entered prep, which just told me, yes, I was in a surplus, but it was probably not my sweet spot. It was not that big of a surplus needed for me to go at a 100% into prep. So I did my first show or my second overall show of my uh, competitive career in uh, Chicago. It was an IMPA show. This is where I took my natural pro card. And then I did another show, which was basically the big show at the end of May. It was the German Championships, which is the GMBF is a fantastic federation. It is very big. Um, I had 21 guys in my class and I took third there. And in between shows, I already realized that I lose some fullness, some, some level of tissue was being lost there. And it's definitely to the length of prep and also probably to how we arranged some things with free feeds and diet breaks and all that stuff. We can go into that a bit later. But um, yeah, all the things I did wrong with the first prep, I did right with the second prep, but I introduced new mistakes with the second prep. So... After that show, at the end of May, I decided together with Cliff to do my first pro show in the States at the IPE Windy City Natural. And it was mid-August. So I had to hold condition from end of May until mid-August, which was my decision and was a bad decision because it was we did not set up nutrition in a way that allowed me to recover from the previous dieting months. So all the accumulative fatigue I got from all these months of dieting and being in a deficit and already starting very lean into the diet um, completely killed me. Um, so the months of June and July were very hard and out of nowhere, basically overnight, I had adherence issues. I never had that before during a diet. So I had huge adherence issues. Um, just being like 200 calories over my my macros being 150 calories over like every single day i never was able to nail a day and if i nail it the next day i would be back to being completely off so that was completely new to me and probably the biggest the biggest setback for me back then was that i didn't notice myself in my actions basically i was doing stuff i did not want to do and, and stuff that did not like resonate what i'm usually about when it comes to dieting when it comes to prep when it comes to bodybuilding so yeah, that's a brief overview of between 2014 and 17. I, that brings so many thoughts into my mind, partly because I wonder, because I don't think I'd heard about you describe it in the way you had just there in terms of the context of your first show as well, only because I did a very similar thing with my first show. I started like a lot heavier. I, I know my weights in pounds, but very similar. I started much heavier, had to lose a lot more weight. Whereas then for my second shows or second season, which was 2014, 2017 as well, I ended up starting really quite lean. Uh, and the only thing I had to do was I like dieted two months and then I was like, right, I'm actually going to have to go into like a maintenance period for two months and then start dieting again, which wasn't ideal either, but maybe slightly better than just dieting straight through. But something uh, you mentioned there is, and people who know you Val, like you're someone who ticks boxes you're very dedicated very consistent like a lot of bodybuilders are and uh, i recently had james krieger on the podcast and we we're talking about diet breaks and the fact that a lot of the time they're just psychological and i think a lot of bodybuilders think 
they kind of poo-poo the psychology. They're like, I can go through that. But you just said there where like you effectively kind of been a bit of a robot and it was never an issue for you. And I wonder if actually, whilst we think we're a bit invincible with our psychology, there's sometimes it can just, something can just, we've only got a certain bandwidth that we can work with. And if we haven't got periods of time where we're eating up or something, it can just break us a bit too soon. I don't know if that's something in hindsight you've looked at where you'd now implement more periods of maybe having breaks. 100%. I think the way we look at these things, especially, I mean, you talk about psychology and it's definitely with everything. It's a character thing. It's also like a psychology thing. So you have a lot of people in bodybuilding that are um, very very dedicated yes but with that dedication comes some sense of recklessness they're like i can do anything i can just punch through this i can power through this and i can guarantee you a deficit that is long enough can break everybody it doesn't matter how dedicated you are it doesn't matter how hardcore you are sooner or later that deficit will absolutely destroy you yeah um especially if you don't have any kind of hormonal support or anything it's just going downhill so um you can't really do anything about that so you have to be smart about it you have to make smart decisions and you have to plan accordingly and that is one thing that i definitely learned especially how i prep people now is how we implement refeeds how we implement diet breaks when we implement them strategically looking at the shows and then implementing the diet break depending on the shows we're doing makes a huge difference not just how people go through prep but also when they are done with prep how they're feeling how quickly are they back to normal i have guys that feel back to normal within four to six weeks after an entire season where they did like three shows and they've been dieting for six to seven months um, and I'm like, well, I did the same thing. Well, it was a bit longer, but I did the same thing. I didn't feel normal for six months after my shows. So that is a long, long period of time, and it's not necessary. Um, I'm not saying you're going to be back to normal in one or two weeks and there's no rebound phase or anything, but you are going to be in a much better position if you think about these things beforehand and how you manage fatigue, how you take care of the deficit as you are prepping and as you are selecting shows, definitely. I love that. I think it's uh, more commonly thought as like diet breaks can be helpful for especially like general pop because it gets them to practice like maintenance because after they've lost the weight, oftentimes, especially like we talk, talk about gen pop, but they could be very serious. They struggle to maintain it. So it gives them practice kind of being in a dieted state, but then kind of still breaking their diet, but just at maintenance. And I think even bodybuilders can appreciate from that because I mean, like you said, a lot of guys, if they've just gone, like you said, they've just kind of brute force gone through an entire diet. Maybe they have been able to adhere, but post-show doesn't always look very pretty. Whereas if you have been able to kind of had those practices at maintenance, post-show becomes a lot more manageable because you're like, oh, I've, I've done that before. I can, I can increase like, and you're in a surplus at that point and still people struggle, but it's far more manageable when you've had those periods of like pit stops to be able to kind of refuel and gather what kind of normality is slightly like absolutely and also like explaining to your clients that these little pit stops are very valuable it's like this little island of safety where you're at and from there you can take another swim because if you never if you're constantly in the deficit if you're constantly trying to force things um, sooner or later you're just go going to run into a wall it's the same with training it's the same with a deficit it's the same with nutrition so if you if you're already planning long-term for a natural bodybuilding season, include all these things because it's going to make everything so much better. And especially as far as 
the maintenance of muscle tissue goes, uh, these things help tremendously. I think, um, I mean, if we one day can get like research on this stuff, that will be absolutely spectacular where we look at like a diet for a competition that goes like for six months and the other one goes for six months, but with implemented diet breaks and who then maintains more muscle tissue, that would be absolutely fantastic. I mean, this is a, a very complicated topic because the study design is almost impossible, but um, this is the type of stuff that that I think makes a huge difference when you then see the final product on stage, how the person is looking, how they are comparing to the other competitors who are probably not implementing diet breaks and are just going straight through from the start of the prep to stage in a calorie deficit. And the only thing they get is the peak week with some, with some uh, refeeds there. So I think if we're already approaching things so strategically with natural bodybuilding that by now everybody's prepping longer and longer, which is great, we also have to implement and talk about these breaks and these phases when not much is happening. And that is fine because that potentiates the next phase. Love that. And I think, yeah, it's kind of like, no, I think it's only becoming more and more apparent how much we're drawing from things like powerlifting where we're thinking about periodization and now we're like okay dietary periodization is it's becoming more important we have to be a bit strategic as a bodybuilder you can't just go kind of all guns blazing especially i think maybe as a natural like you said we haven't got anything kind of we can't just chuck in a bit of extra drug to bring up a certain hormone or whatever so these periods of time like nutrition is just such a powerful tool for us do you have any kind of um, general guidelines in terms of how you like to do diet breaks, where you place them with clients? Uh, I'd love to hear that. Absolutely. I think it ties right into how we structure training week, how we structure a microcycle. Um, what I've been doing for a few years now is when we deload, we just take three to four days off, depending on some clients, even five days. And I think we messaged about this um, where you, you obviously take a full deload week where you still have some uh, exercises in there where you just work on movement quality and all that stuff but just with reduced intensity and reduced volume obviously so um i've came to the conclusion that it's very very suited for a lot of clients um, especially the way we approach training that they just get time off from the gym completely now obviously they're gonna feel a bit rusty with certain movements when they come back into training but then again we're not performing a highly technical lift like a snatch or a clean and jerk we're doing a squat we're doing an rdl these things once you have mastered them are very easy to maintain technique wise so during those times depending on how long the person is off from the gym i implement the refeeds I implement my diet break. So depending on the client, it can last into the next microcycle or it's just reduced to those deload days where we take off completely from the gym. And there's different approaches to this. I mean, some people I overfeed more on certain days, others are pretty on maintenance calories. Um, it really depends on the context and the client, but this is how I approach things. And I've always also done refeed um, or diet, um, diet breaks with clients for an entire week where we basically just go, okay, we have three or four days off from the gym and we take that diet break into the next microcycle with three additional days of overfeeding. Brilliant. And out of interest, in terms of the deloads, how, I guess, are those auto-regulated and how, when do they tend to land for your competitors? Uh, we're not auto-regulating them. Um, I used to do that, um, but I've noticed the stronger and the more muscular the client, the more proactive our thinking has to be. Got because you. I don't want a client to run into a wall and then we deload. Because that would be, like, that would be closest to the auto-regulative approach. So basically, we do it every three to five weeks. Um, 
I think as far as timeframes goes, all of these things fall similarly to what you are doing with clients um, and what a lot of the, the sports literature is telling us to do with um, periodization and how we should approach like a microcycle and a mesocycle. Um, so it's every three to five weeks and depending on certain other markers like sleep or performance and just subjective feel during the day, we might take the diet break and put it somewhere else. Right. I mean, it could be a day before we start deloading. It could be a day after. It depends on different things, but we just are flexible with it. But they are definitely part of the whole thing um, of the entire structure, how we uh, see the prep. I think it's just a very bad idea to have a deload where you're trained to reducing the training stimulus and you're also reducing calorie intake. That just calls for muscle tissue loss. Like you have basically, I always explain it like this to people, you have basically two buttons you can press uh, that induce anabol anabolism. And the one is nutrition, a calorie surplus, and the other one is a training stimulus. So if none of these buttons are being pushed, you are in trouble. So you want to make sure one of these buttons is always on um, when you are in a severe deficit or in a long-term prep. Cool. Yeah, I think it, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And you're completely right. That is a lot of my kind of preferred way to do it. And yeah, with the, the muscle loss scenario, it's very interesting because I guess um, I've talked back and forth a bit with Pascal about it and he has had less, uh, I guess, preferred or uh, his uh, experience with diet breaks hasn't been as good as mine has. So I've done it with clients, been super successful myself, always found it really great, uh, but his hasn't been quite there. If you ever found clients take a diet break and maybe it pushes them in the wrong direction like to maybe overfeed too much they end up binging or yeah it just breaks up their momentum so much that you almost consider is this even worthwhile or how do you then if you obviously it's ideal that you want to take it how do you get them in a position where actually this is someone who typically doesn't do well with them but now we've changed these we've modified it so they now kind of get the most out of the diet break I think it's very important to look at the magnitude of the diet break. How long does the diet break take? And what if we play around with just slight adjustments? Like if we're usually doing a seven-day diet break, what happens if we bring it down to five? Is the client just too long in a surplus or too long at maintenance with those seven days that they just completely lose a mindset for prep? What if we just shorten that and then jump right back into the deficit? I mean... Not everybody needs exactly seven days. This is the same thing with, with other variables where we just throw in a number and say that's the right number. Well, it's maybe five days, maybe it's nine days. I mean, I know people that do 14-day uh, 14 diet breaks and benefit greatly from them and then have a very aggressive phase again and then do a 14-day diet break again. Um, we just have to look for different variables and look out for different variables and also just make sure as you're working with that person, as you're collecting data, you want to implement all these things you're learning about the person and just things you observe. How is your sleep? How is your performance? How is your subjective feel? Um, all these things um, play a large, large role. Um, as far as Pascal and not being that big of a fan of diet breaks, um, I think... I think it's it's very much how you think about the diet break itself. What do you think is coming after the diet break and what it allows you to do long term? I think the longer the prep, the more you're going to appreciate a diet break. Cool. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think that holds true with the consensus within the industry as well, which is nice because 
you are specifically working with the people that we're trying to, uh, a lot of us are trying to apply this to. So the fact that, yeah, someone with a lot of experience has utilized these in such a successful approach and methodical way is actually incredibly refreshing to hear. So I kind of sidetracked because we ended up, we're talking about you and now we've already jumped on to talking about uh, your clients, but something I did want to talk about in terms of your own prep, do you think even with maybe breaks away, um, is there a period of time that's kind of, talked about holding condition for too long. Do you think there's like a length of prep that even if you are having like ad hoc weeks at maintenance, that's just too long? Uh, do you think you could just be dieting too long where actually there's kind of like a, I describe it as like, there's just a period of time where you're kind of on fire and like trying to put it out with just a week long diet break is not enough. You have to be away from that fire for a long period of time. Do you think there's such a case for that and condition to just get worse and worse and worse? I think there is, but it's definitely different for everybody. And plus one thing we also have to consider is you are getting better and better at dieting and at prepping the more often you do it. I always tell people dieting is like a skill. You have to diet a few times until you nail it every single time afterwards. Like, remember, you're like, let's remember your very first mini cut. Your last mini cut is probably way, way different than your very first mini cut because just the execution, how you think about it, how you approach it is very, very different. You're just way more experienced. And also, as far as what your body is doing with a calorie deficit, your body just knows what is happening. Um, it doesn't know what's going on when you do that for the very first time. Um, I remember the difference between being in a deficit 2014 for my first prep and being in deficit 2017. It was very, very different. And we also see that on stage with competitors that have competed many, many times. The level of conditioning they achieve compared to a first time is very, very different. And they're not doing things drastically different. Yeah. Uh, we could compare people that prep for the same amount of time. I guarantee you the guy that has prepped numerous times before is going to bring better conditioning to the stage simply because his body knows what is going to happen. His body is prepared for what is going to happen. But as far as putting a number on it, I think I've done like 30 weeks of dieting until my first show 2017. And after that, things went downhill. I think if we can structure our competition so we are not 100% for the first competition and like 95% there for the second one and then peak for the last one, that will be perfect because you want to be best at your final biggest competition. Like let's say uh, you do numerous qualifiers, you do one or two qualifiers, you want to be 90, 95% for the first two qualifiers and then nail it for the finals, obviously. That's where you have to be your best. You don't want to be your best at the first show and then things go downhill from there. Yeah, I love that. I think it's people ended up maybe taking the longer preps a bit too far. And I think I'd heard the phrase, I may have even wrongly used it. Now I'd say wrongly that you can't be, you can't peak too early. Like you, there's no such thing as being ready too early. And I think now that people have got a better understanding and handle of true competitive conditioning, there is such a thing as being ready too early because we now understand actually how far we can take it because I'd say someone like, um, why, why can I only remember bath, bathtub, bathtub? I can't say that. I can't even say it. <laughs> know how yeah. I want to say it. But Brett Freeman, um, I, he even said he could get leaner, but look, I think like pinnacle of kind of the level of leanness, there's not really much further than that. So if he's achieving that, you can certainly achieve that too soon and then kind of drag too later into things. So yeah, I think that's very well said in terms of like structuring and being again, just periodizing and planning ahead of time. Kind of, I, I understood the approach of maybe not picking a show because like competing when your body's ready, but I think 
there's a li- uh, a limit to that uh, like you kind of mentioned with the fact that yeah you can just you can take too long and kind of peak at the wrong times and not be ready where you want to be yeah i'm definitely guilty of saying in the past you cannot peak too early because by now i definitely i'm unconvinced you can i've seen it numerous times i've seen it with myself i've seen it with other competitors and one thing we often do especially in natural bodybuilding we think it's only about conditioning and that conditioning is just a result of being leaner and leaner and leaner that is not conditioning conditioning is like some people say fullness or conditioning without fullness is not worth anything and i tend to agree with that the conditioning you bring out with all the muscle tissue you can maintain and just peaking perfectly is very very different than the conditioning we're just yeah we just look very hungry basically so um, that's a huge difference and that is definitely uh, a product of time frames and how you approach fatigue management within the prep and yeah i think I think we I think the term peaking too early is not possible it just came about because so many people are not on not in yeah. shape on stage and obviously that is true too but at the same time the people that really think about all this stuff very often push the gas pedal too hard and they just died and died and died and they died themselves into the ground and they could have probably looked better at 3 weeks out compared to 0 weeks out so Brett is a fantastic example because I saw him live at Worlds and he looked he looked fantastic and that level of conditioning only looks that great. And that level of conditioning is only achievable if you also bring the fullness. I think that term fullness is often laughed at, especially mm-hmm. natural bodybuilding. Well, what can be full about a 160-pound bodybuilder? Well, a lot. There's a huge difference if he's completely flat or if he brings the fullness and he's actually maintaining all his muscle tissue. Yeah, absolutely love that. And uh, I guess that's where, especially I know he worked with Cliff and Cliff's obviously well known for peaking. And that's where peaking really starts to make a difference. Uh, again, people say peaking doesn't make that much of a difference, which might be true for majority because majority don't get to the condition that is like pro like Brett Freeman, where you need to have that level of kind of any kind of variable slightly off could lead to the look just not quite being where you want it to be. So Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the podcast. Just wanted to take one moment of your time to actually talk about our coaching services over at Revive Stronger. We at Revive Stronger, we offer an incredible premium personal coaching service just for people like you. And I know you will love it. Do you want to work with us? Here's what I need you to do. Head over to revivestronger.com. Go up to the coaching tab click on online coaching. Once there, read through the requirements and what it takes to be an online client. Once finished, hit apply now and you're only one step away from applying to our services. Fill out the Google form and you're done. And that was basically it. A coach is going to reach out to you shortly and then it's Team Revive Stronger. I love that. And actually you spoke about an issue we started off with your first prep. You felt like you were started maybe too heavy and second prep it was you started too light too lean essentially is there an amount of leanness or like pounds or kilos above stage weight or percentage of body weight above like predicted stage weight that you ideally would have a person so that they haven't got like too much to lose or obviously being way too lean and too close and maybe already in a fatigue state for sure i I thought about like percentages as far how much you want to be over stage weight. I got away from that because I think it's just better to guesstimate somebody's body fat percentage and go from there. And I think you want to be in the range of 15 to 16 for males. Um, I think that is good. You don't want to start a prep at 20%. You have to do a mini cut before that. Otherwise, you're just running out of time. And the reason I don't like 
a certain percentage over stage weight is because I know people that can drop a lot of weight very, very quickly in the first six to eight initial weeks of a prep and others take it slowly right from the beginning and the rate of loss does not change from week 26 to week one. It's the same all the way through. But some other people, they, it just greatly fluctuates and they lose very aggressively at the beginning and they should if they can. And later on, it just slows down tremendously. So this is what I, what I was, would be looking for with a client. And also the biggest thing is just, okay, body fat distribution and how the person looks in pictures. This is one thing when people look at me now and they're like, wow, you only have to drop like 12 kilos to be on stage. I'm like, nope, I just have great body fat distribution. Um, if I drop five kilos, I look the exact same. I don't look leaner. I don't look better. I look the exact same, which on the other hand, like it's great for off season because you look so much leaner, but for a prep or a stage athlete, it's not great at all because I still know what number I have to be on stage in order to be conditioned. So my off season weight doesn't tell other people a whole lot because the body fat distribution is so favorable that I always in my off season look ready to start a prep even though i'm not so huge huge differences between uh, individuals and we have to look um at the body for percentage guesstimated and from there just go and see how we plan out the prep excellent and i guess actually an interesting question then is obviously you said and i i have actually experienced similar with clients and uh, i'm not i don't know the explanation behind it but there's certain things i look at and i wonder if you look at the same where you might have a target rate of loss in mind. So for example, like you said, like you'd expect out the gates, you can be a bit more aggressive, maybe closer to a 1% body weight loss per week. And then it slows down as you get leaner. That's kind of theoretically what you'd want and expect. But you've had clients who maybe you've lost it like a slower pace and it's just continued. And maybe at points it looked too slow, other points it looked too fast. Are there things you're looking at past kind of the numbers that are giving you an indication that that's okay? What, what kind of indicators do you look for? The biggest thing, and this is also the, the hardest thing to explain, is visual feedback. Um, because this is where some people are like wondering, what is this particular coach seeing when he looks at these pictures? And because some people just look at pictures and they're like, hey, I look the same. And you're like, no, you look significantly better from four weeks ago. And they then ask you, well, how, how do you know that? In, and the thing you then have to explain to people, it's just not the number on the scale. Um, let's say somebody just loses 200 grams over four weeks and you, the target was like 600 grams. So, um, but the client looks significantly different. Well, there's different things that play part to that. Like it's, um, how the muscle pushes against the skin. It's how the skin itself looks. I had an entire discussion with Cliff about how skin looks on certain competitors and what it tells you about the conditioning. Um, it's all these little things that play into your decision-making as well. And I absolutely hate that we cannot put a number on these things and just make them a trackable data point like weight or weight on the bar or whatever it may be. But this is also part of bodybuilding and being a bodybuilding coach. You have to look at these pictures um, for each individual client and know if they are better now or if they're worse now. And that may to somebody else that may make not like doesn't make a whole lot of sense if they are not used to that client how the client is looking and this is what a lot of people would categorize as the eye or having eyes for this particular client or for this particular uh, sport because this is part of it you have to be able to tell sometimes in horrible lighting <laughs> what clients um, are doing and if they're progressing at the rate you want to want them to progress and as far as um, rate of loss goes uh, what I do with all clients before they start their preps, I have like a, a huge spreadsheet where we write down the shows. 
and also the rate of loss and the rate of loss we have to nail every week in order to be at this weight, the predicted stage weight on show day number one. So this obviously helps us to guide us through the prep and through the weeks because now we know, hey, this week we have to lose 400 grams. And of course, we then don't know exactly if it's water weight or fat or if some of it is, um, yeah, uh, even muscle, muscle. But this helps us tremendously to just find the sweet spot every week and if we are on pace for our um, predicted stage weight. Yeah, I love that. And actually, that reminds me of uh, Cliff brought up uh, during hip when we brought him over for the uh, London seminar and it really hit me like hit home because I think there's scenarios of which maybe I've um, hoped for the whoosh to come and there's been no whoosh and it's been too long really since I should have made a change and there's obviously the school of thought of I mean if you're doing everything right you're ticking the boxes and the scale hasn't come down maybe give it a week but Cliff was very much a kind of like you said, you panned out the weight. He was like, if there hasn't been the rate of loss that he wanted, he'll make a, a change, he'll make an adjustment. Are you very similar in that line of thought for contest prep? I guess you have a deadline. So uh, the kind of waiting around, you just can't maybe take that risk. You can't take that risk. And it really depends on how you communicate with your client and just ask them, hey, do you have any idea why the weight stalled the way it did this week? And maybe the client is then telling you something you didn't know previously that affects your decision. But Cliff is absolutely right in saying that, hey, we have a deadline. There's, there's a day where we step on stage, where we're getting compared. Nobody cares if we did not adjust when we should have adjusted our macros in week 16. So uh, this is definitely something like it's, it's an approach where a lot of people a lot of people don't realize that you have a certain time frame available and you have to use that time frame. Like nobody's going to reschedule the show for you. You have to make the day of the show and you have to be conditioned for that day. So I like that approach, but I always communicate with the client asking me, hey, do you have any idea what is going on this week with your weight? Just simply asking them that question can make a huge difference. And all of a sudden, they tell you about the sleep, they tell you about some private problem, whatever it may be. And then you go, okay, with all these information, maybe we will maintain macronutrients for the coming week. But just know that if by midweek, we have not solved this issue, we have to drop now. Got you. Yeah, no, that makes really good sense. And that's actually refreshing because it's something that I've started doing is kind of that midweek, if they sound like they're in a stress position and maybe it's kind of that water attention being held, kind of that midweek check-in of kind of like, if we haven't dropped, then we're going to take it down. And sometimes I think they hate me and they're like, they don't want to check in that midweek because they're going to get that drop. Um, but I guess yeah. it's that you kind of get that mindset of where well, you want to be ready for the show. So um, we want to kick this up a notch. So no, I appreciate all your thoughts on that. That's really yeah, interesting to hear about. And is there anything else from your previous kind of competitive history that you're going to be taking into? I don't, when are you next looking to compete? And is there any kind of lessons and things that you're going to do differently this time around? Like the more time passes without me stepping on stage, the more stuff I want to improve the next time. Because you just the more time passes, you just have like a certain distance to the whole thing and you're not looking at it as emotional as right after it. Um, and I think that's a big thing. I initially plan on stepping on stage this year, but with work being uh, very, very high last, last, uh, last fall, 
and traveling around for numerous shows, I decided to do another year of off-season. So I'm going to be on stage 2021 and making sure everything until then is in place and I don't overwork myself to the same degree as I did 2019. It was just, it was a very good year for coaching. It was not a very good year for building muscle, especially the last six months of 2019. But all of these lessons can be looked at in a positive light, like we said at the beginning, if you just yeah, take the learning first. If you say, okay, I learned this out of that situation and now I'm moving forward without looking at um, what I may have lost as far as time goes. I can always step on stage. The stage is always waiting for you. It doesn't matter if it's 2020, 2021 or 2022. The stage is always going to be there and the more, like the better I set myself up for prep, the better I will look on stage. Um, as far as what would I change for my next prep, I would probably be a bit more aggressive right at the beginning. And also, like I said, find the best mix of my first prep and my second prep. So I don't want to start too fat and I also don't want to start too lean. I want to find that sweet spot and just make sure I then have combined that sweet spot of body fat percentage with the appropriate time of uh, prep length for my first show and also not peak for the first show. Like very important, like peaking too early shall be avoided. Yeah, I guess the great thing is once you're at the level you're at, you know you're competitive, so you don't need to think about doing your best. At and, and credit to 2014, you thought only you people did one show. Um, and I, I remember I competed in two organizations for my first year and I was like, man, after this first show, can't I just like end it here? Just why am I competing again? And now you see people and they're doing multiple qualifiers for the same show. And I completely get it now because it's just more experience. Um, and that can be very helpful. And I, if you have the ability, I mean, peaking that frequently might not always be uh, the best thing for you, but if it works out, then I can completely see that. That's really cool. And actually on this line, um, this was one of my later questions, but it makes good sense to ask you here. Uh, you obviously train at Das Gym um, and there's some amazing bodybuilders there. And obviously you're somewhat surrounded by guys who are a lot larger than you for specific reasons because uh, they've got some uh, kind of enhancement there. Is there any kind of what's keeping you natural and is there any kind of, yeah, have you got any kind of thoughts in where you might go in future? Yeah, I will always stay natural. I I never really considered anything else, to be honest. Um, that always sounds like like uh, like I'm not telling the truth, but I never really considered it for some reason. And actually, now that you ask me, I don't really know why. Um, I think the biggest thing is just long-term health and not knowing what these actions would produce in like 10, 20, 30 years from now. I just want to know I'm in good health in 30 years from now. There's a time after stepping on stage. There's a time after competing. And I think you just allow for that time to be potentially much healthier if you stay natural long term. I mean, I, I definitely think about um, TRT when I'm older. I think that makes that's fantastic for general health and overall health. But right now, as far as competing goes, I am very much only interested in the natural realm. Cool. Yeah, that definitely sings true to my thoughts completely on the matter as well. It's kind of, and so many natural guys don't even make it to their kind of supposed limit that we don't even know what that is right now. So uh, the kind of always the thought in my mind was like, oh, this is like extra progression and like I can keep eking out gains. It's kind of, well, 
damn, I, I'm probably never even going to realize my full potential. So I think that's a, a poor excuse on my behalf. So yeah, I respect the fact that you're kind of thinking about longevity and health. And I guess natural bodybuilding for you is fulfilling you and everything that you would want from it. And you don't need to kind of go down, nothing against it, but you don't need that kind of enhancement there. Yeah, I agree. And another thing is, I think it's very, it potentially leads you to not think as deeply about nutrition and training because so many other things work in your favor all of a sudden. And I think that is very detrimental to some people. Uh, this is why a lot of enhanced guys that I know say, hey, you guys know way more about nutrition and training than we do because we just add this different variable and things just work out. It doesn't matter if we do this with nutrition or that with nutrition. I'm not saying these people don't think about that stuff, but they have a different approach to it. Obviously, everybody would because of that added compound right there. Yeah, I, and you, you can even see this and I always hate using it. I mean, I hate using it, but it's such a true thing is you see guys who like a huge, they may well be natural, huge, um, very gifted. And then you look at how they're training, you hear them talking about their training, you hear them talking about their nutrition, you ask some questions and you're kind of like, this makes no sense. How are you this big? Uh, and like yep. genetics play equally such a big role like having some enhancement on your side it can make you underthink these things so i think you're right in that naturals um, probably don't have that kind of uh, safety net as such to be able to rely on uh, just like guys with like even worse genetics probably a lot of listeners here uh, if they're delving into as much detail as what we are they're either really eager to get everything out of it or maybe they struggle to get just anything from just basic advice and they have to take it to that next level yeah, absolutely. And another thing, I, I'm overwhelmed by how much information there's out about nutrition training and recovery. I can barely keep up with all that information. If you add a fourth tool to all of this, that is very, very complicated. If you really think about this stuff, then I, I don't know what I would do because it's just not enough hours in the day to actually manage all this stuff and all that information. It's actually fun. That reminds me, I was saying how I have a lot of respect for like vegan like very good vegan bodybuilders because they have to think about a variable that if you eat meat i mean you're just ticking the box if you're eating protein it's an animal source you don't have to worry so much but vegans have to complement your proteins all of this sort of thing so um, again like it's just similar steroids you have to think about that other element that's coming in and if you don't then like you're, you're not going to be putting your best foot forward so I, i'm completely with you I, I always said it's just too much to think about i think about too many extra variables like and things as it is i think just having that would just drive me up the wall and i'd be very anxious about everything so yeah um to draw on obviously das gym we already spoke about it and how great a gym it is and something I have never had the kind of, I guess, blessing of is a huge range of equipment. Um, I've always kind of, because of where I live, uh, central London, there's just not a huge amount of good gyms. They're always like on the outskirts because it makes sense. Land's expensive. Uh, and so like, you're never going to get the best gyms. So for bodybuilding, having such a huge range of equipment could be a blessing, but also do you sometimes struggle to actually select movements and how do you select movements and how is your exercise variation? Do you ever get tempted? I see you bringing in new machines all the time where it's like, I'm just going to drop this one in now, or I'm going to do an extra set on here because it's kind of a kid in a candy store, a bodybuilder in a kind of fantastic facility like your own. It's very tempting. And the longer you train at the gym, the better you're going to get with all that equipment standing around you and you're just not touching it because you're still progressing another lift. And that lift is working out well and is ticking all the boxes. So you don't need the other one. So it's definitely, it's definitely a question of, okay, 
what is my current training program looking like and is my current training program working? Am I progressing? Is everything on pace where I want it to be? Because obviously, once you think about switching out an exercise, it is very tempting to just um, like do less sets overall on this one machine and just add another machine. So the total amount of volume is the same, but you just add two new machines. Um, that is that is definitely tricky, but um, I think I got that very well under control with all my clients because I have numerous clients obviously training at this facility. And while we have a lot of great machines, people understand when I tell them that progress is king. Like your progression is much more important than training on a completely new machine because other, otherwise we would like we would fall into the category of muscle confusion and trying to do something different with a muscle group every every four weeks. And I don't think that is really necessary and should not be an option. So over time, you just also realize not all of the machines we have at Das Gym are fantastic for optimizing muscle hypertrophy. You have to say that. Some of these machines are simply in there because they have history. They are like we have some of the machines from Dorian Yates that he trained on at Temple Gym. They bought it last year and now they are at wow. Stars Gym, which which of course is fantastic. But yeah. some of these machines, uh, like I'm not particularly happy with them because they're not just not good machines. I don't fit in them. I don't like the profile. So some of these machines are just there because, hey, here's a machine Dorian Yates trained on. So it's more like, it's not just a gym, it's also a museum. And that's what yeah. Andy, the owner, really wants people to see. He wants to see there's different types of equipment in there. And I think that's um, there should be some variation in there as far as the machines you have, but it shouldn't be like you don't need 20 different chess machines. You need a few good ones, you need a few good ones with history, and there you go. Awesome. And actually in that line of thought, when are you are you moving, sorry, are you changing movements, rotating them once they've stalled, or do you ever change it before it's stalling as it's slowing down? And how many variants for a muscle group do you tend to use? Yeah, I am definitely in the camp of using a lift as long as possible until it stalls. And a stalling lift can have different phases, basically. Sometimes you can tell, hey, there's constantly technique breakdown occurring at this weight. We have to do something about it, like ideally switch it out or do a reset where we drop the weight significantly and then look at your execution again because we don't want that to break down to a significant degree or if we're constantly attempting the same weight and we're just not progressing our reps uh, we have to think about what is going wrong here and depending on how long that person has already progressed that lift that can yeah that can mean okay we have progressed this lift for six months now we have progressed it for three months now you are already at a very high training level it is unrealistic to expect you're constantly progressing something like a bench press something like a squat something like an rdl because sooner or later you will be world champion at everything and that's not going to happen so we have to think intelligently about different variables like training level strength levels of the person and how long we are already working with that lift um, with that being said i still have certain pillars of a training program as far as exercise selection goes like i always want to see a deadlift variation i always want to see a squat variation I always want to see some sort of bench press variation even though in my opinion for pressing there's much more leeway as far as exercise selection goes than for example squatting or deadlifting um i always want to see a rowing variation whether that's chest supported one or a free weight row um, i want to see all these things in a program and depending on a person we can just like cycle these lifts out uh, depending on what we actually need for the current program, if we're working on a weakness, if we're just maintaining, um, different things like that. Yeah. Really cool. And actually you mentioned, and 
uh, you mentioned about certain machines having given kind of resistance profiles and kind of resistance profile strength curves. These have become ever more popular recently and kind of I think they're being used by some advanced guys in a very clever and kind of good way. And I think it's unfortunately just like like probably both of us looked at Flex Magazine and copied the routines of those guys and they just weren't for us. Some younger guys or less advanced guys are trying to use these ideas and kind of misapplying them. But do you, how much of this do you apply in your own training? Kind of the idea of maybe manipulating resistance curves with like bands and stuff like that. And um, what are your general thoughts behind that idea? Because I think it's probably, there's obviously no real research on it. It's more just of a kind of theoretical idea based off kind of some physiology, I guess. Yeah, so we have different machines at the gym. We have machines from over 30 manufacturers at the gym. So we have a diverse pool of different machines. And some of these machines are designed so they have a resistance curve that is matching your natural strength curve. And this is one of the things, and I've mentioned this to clients, this is something that sounds so great, right? It sounds amazing, like everything is matched. Um, but we have to just think about stuff like resistance profiles in a very critical way, in my opinion, because if that stuff is really the end all be all of optimizing how we move and how we resistance train, then people who always and only use free weight exercise would have never grown uh, to the degree they did. So I think all that stuff is fine and well and pushing that forward is very important, like having different attachments, having different machines, machines with matching resistance profiles, all that stuff. But I think the basics won't change. The basics will always be there and they will always be part of uh, smart training programming. And like I said, you have to think differently about certain machines. Like I'm very particular when I say, for example, a chest press machine, and really, I really want to know what kind of chest press machine a client has at his gym if I don't know the gym. Like I have clients send me pictures or videos of the gym so I know, okay, it's from this manufacturer. And 90% of the machines I've used myself, so I know how it feels. I know what the profile is and all that stuff. Because what I've noticed as far as resistance profiles go, um, you're going to capture a lot more tension across the entire range of motion meaning one set is also much more, in most cases, much more taxing on your recovery than, for example, ironically, a free weight exercise. So I'm not saying a deadlift variation is less or more taxing than a chest press, but if you're matching a resistance profile and every degree of the joint range of motion is being challenged, that can cause issues, not just as far as your recovery goes, but also as joint integrity, for example, goes. Um, I've had numerous clients train on different gyms, uh, at different machines at the gym, where the resistance profile was very even. So you can basically, you're being challenged from the bottom up all the way to the top. And all of them reported shoulder issues within two or three weeks. Um, you don't have that with most free weight exercise because there's this distinct sticking point, And once you push through that wall, you're basically free to go. It's very easy at the top. It's very easy at the bottom, wherever it may be. So um, while all of this sounds great, we have to be very careful when we look at these machines and all these new inventions. I think it's great that the industry is trying to push things forward here, but we have to we have to take it with a pinch of salt and be very critical and very skeptical of these things. Fantastic. And on that line of thought, actually, like you said, you've got a huge number of machines available but you still like the big barbell basics. What's your opinion on kind of, if you do have one, but what's your, when you think about kind of barbells versus machines, what's kind of, how do you go about programming for someone in that way? 
I think free weight should always be the basis of your programming simply because first of all these lifts we know and we know that they are they give you the most bang for your buck that's number one number two they require some technical proficiency to actually learn you have to like learn about execution with a free weight exercise there's no guiding you there's you have to learn the lift and so you constantly have to work on that just because like if you're getting lazy with a squatting technique that will show within a few weeks that will show within a few months and maybe then you train heavy enough or are strong enough that the weights might injure you so you don't you don't want that um, at the same time i think machines can be used very intelligently within a training program for example if um, i have a client who has a very hard time feeling a certain muscle group. Not saying that's the end or be all of like training for hypertrophy, but it can be valuable to feel a target muscle. Then we might start with a machine actually, where we have like a guided path, a guided movement, and really focus through pauses or tempo work on that particular target muscle. And after that, we go into a free weight exercise where we then again try to use what we just learned through that guided motion and transfer it into a free weight exercise. Um, there's different things, different, different means you can use that. But another thing would be just general fatigue management. Um, if you have an exercise that taxes like your entire lower body, let's take the squat. And after that, you're not as stable as you were before because you're just fatigued. Well, then you jump on the lying leg curl, you jump on a leg press because afterwards you can just do more sets on that equipment without the risk of getting injured with another free weight exercise. Fantastic. Yeah, kind of like the, and I'm of the same opinion, the kind of big compound lifts form the foundation and then you kind of fill the holes with kind of the machine work a little bit and maybe isolation work in that case. So uh, I think that's very well said. And I've taken a lot away from this interview, Valentin, and I think the audience will as, as well. If they want to learn more from you, uh, if they potentially want to get coached by you, where should they reach out? There's basically two destinations. It's either my website, that's valentintambosi.com, just my entire name all the way through, no underscores, no no dots. And the other one will be my Instagram, which is just valentintambosi. And yeah, if you're interested, just, just reach out. Fantastic. And we'll make sure that's all linked below. I want to say a massive thank you again to Val for coming on. And I'm sure the audience are all very happy as well. So thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, Steve. Thank you. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics.
discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.